Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and welcome to MedHeads. Today we have Chrissy with us. She is a care and recovery coordinator and is also a person with a lived experience of alcohol use disorder. And she has overcome that disorder and remains in a very successful recovery. So Chrissy, the last time we spoke, we, we heard your story. And I was hoping today that we could break it down and maybe today focus on the early phase of, of, what, of what your story was all about. And I wanted to highlight that, you know, if one considers the social determinants of chronic disease, and bear in mind that alcohol use disorder is a chronic disease, one of the key factors for the social determinants of chronic disease is adverse child experience. So bearing that in mind, would you be able to, you know, give us some insights into how you feel you were predisposed to, to go on the journey that you did? So, hi, Fergal. Um, hi. Right, in, in terms of um, the predisposition, uh, my father uh, is or was an alcoholic. Um, he's no longer with us, but um, his three sisters, uh, I believe, were alcoholic. But his parents were both alcoholic and died from alcohol-related illness or um, use disorder. Um, both of them, were, or one was gone before, before I was born and another soon after. Um, everyone on my dad's side of the family, whilst alcoholic, were all functioning alcoholics, so they all held down jobs, uh, I guess maintained a reasonably normal um, life on the outside, mm. but but um, were certainly what I would consider today, now that I know, you know more about um, this disorder, I would certainly consider them alcoholic. So I think from a genetic point of view, there was a predisposition. Um, so dad, your father uh, and everyone in your father's immediate family was an alcoholic. Is that right? Yes. What yes. is an alcoholic? I mean, I know what alcohol use disorder means, but what, what's an alcoholic? An alcoholic. Um, to me, I mean, an alcoholic is a lot more than just the substance. It's a lot more than just somebody who drinks too much. Um, you know, to me, alcohol is in fact 10% of my problem. Mm. Uh, 90% is has nothing to do with alcohol. Alcohol is the solution, yet, yeah, to, to a pre-existing uh, condition that I think if it hadn't been alcohol that I looked for um, to relieve myself, it would have been something else. It would have been another form um, of, I suppose, uh, getting out of reality. So um, I, alcohol I, was my substance of choice, let's put it that way. Um, maybe because it was accessible, maybe because it was socially acceptable. Um, it certainly wasn't socially acceptable the way that I drank, but, you know, at least mm -hmm. it was something that I didn't feel that I was doing anything too wrong by, by uh, obtaining. Mm -hmm. um, so to me, an alcoholic in a really basic sense, is somebody who, once they pick up a drink, has a very difficult time stopping, like on mm. that occasion. That mm. 
can look different um, to a lot of different people. So some people will go on enormous sprees for, I don't know, days, weeks, months. Some people will be sort of like daily top-up drinkers. Others will be just binges or when they do drink, um, they're out of control. So um, What's a, a top-up drinker? I don't understand that. A, a top-up drinker, somebody who just sort of grazes over the day. So they might, you know, wake up a little bit jittery, have a drink, you know, lose the jitters and just have enough to not be completely out of control necessarily. But um, I guess keep that those uncomfortable uh, well, physical withdrawals at bay, but also um, emotional and, um, yeah, mental, <laughs> so, I guess, relieve the anxiety or relieve just the feelings that looking back I used to drink on so so yeah so an alcoholic would be somebody who can't stop once they start or I can't guarantee my behavior I know that I can't guarantee mm. the outcome um, and also once they make a really sane decision to stop because that just makes a lot of sense because your life's an absolute wreck and and every time you pick up a drink it's a nightmare I'll make mm. a really sane decision to stop and after a certain period of time, I forget about why I stopped. Uh, I minimise why I stopped. I rationalise why it's time for me to have another drink. I become so incredibly emotionally disturbed that I've got no alternative but to look for relief. That's That's been my, my experience. So, um, yeah, so today, you know, few years into recovery um, I don't have a problem with alcohol itself drinking mm. is not an issue today but I have a living problem you know I have a, a living not so much a problem anymore but I have to be really aware that my thinking will send me back to drinking in a moment if I don't really keep on top of a few yeah different areas so so would it be fair to say then is is that an alcoholic is someone with a mindset whereby, you know, one's just not enough. You can't stop. And to, be, to maintain freedom from alcoholism, you have to be constantly vigilant to the thought processes that even allow you permission to think about the alcohol. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's really fair to say. That sounds yeah. right. Right. So... Your father was an alcoholic, and all his family, his mother, his father, and all his three sisters, they were all alcoholics, yeah? So he didn't stand a chance, did he? Did he? Yeah, I wouldn't have thought so, no. Mm -hmm. um, and look, to be honest, yeah, I don't know uh, any more of like the extended family, but mm -hmm. um, I imagine right. if we look through the tree, it all looked yeah. the same. What about your mother on her side of the family? Um, there is some alcoholism scattered throughout that side of the family, mm -hmm. um, but through that side of the family, there, um, there tends to be issues around mental illness, a little bit more so mm -hmm. than alcoholism. Um, I do believe that my mother, yeah, has some sort of undiagnosed mental illness. I'm not a doctor or a psychiatrist. I'm, I'm not sure exactly mm -hmm. what that is but I don't think she's 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 a lovely woman but she's not I would say a well woman um mm. and I really think looking back that that played out quite a lot uh during childhood and um and it had an effect and I know mum didn't mean 
for that to be the case, but it was the mm. case. So, yeah. yeah. So on your father's side, you had the alcohol, and on your mother's side, you had the mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And basically, you I think everyone would acknowledge that you were vulnerable on a genetic level to um, to developing uh, to, to becoming an alcoholic yourself would you not say yeah i would mm, yeah. I definitely you know that makes sense to me and um i think i i may have mentioned before but i think if i had to guess that um this kind of whatever happens in my brain when i actually have like put the substance into my body that phenomenon of craving that kind of in that urge that insatiable the fear of it running out whatever that either chemical imbalance is or you know i'm not sure if neurons or, or what happens but i suspect there's something genetic there mm. <laughs> um yeah. because uh, sorry i'll but because my father and his sisters weren't raised with the same sort of social um, issues or uh, that, that my sister and I were raised with. So I guess what I'm saying is they didn't really have those that social um, predisposition, I don't believe. So And yet they were still alcoholic, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. But genes, uh, genetics is not the only... It's not the complete answer, isn't it? There's always an interplay, as you've alluded to now, with environment, isn't there? Yeah. So looking back on your story, can you pick out uh, themes in your environment that contributed to your predisposition to becoming an alcoholic? Okay. So mum and dad divorced when I was two. I don't remember that. Um, I've got one memory of my dad. but So I'm not sure um, if there... I mean, obviously, that would have been a bit of an upheaval at the time. My mum remarried very quickly. Um, so even as a young child, we probably would have wondered where dad had gone and what we knew, you know, and we're in this new environment. Um, there was that, but from age about two until eight, when my mum was married to my stepdad, um, there was a lot of violence and mm. a lot of yelling, um, huge fights, mm. chairs through windows, police being called and um, a really frightening environment, really, really. And if it wasn't, if it wasn't full-blown, you know, um, fisticuffs, then there was always the threat. We had seen that. We knew that that was a potential, that that was a possibility. And I waited most nights for that to happen because the screaming would get louder and louder. And, um, yeah, my sister and I hid a lot of the time and blocked our ears and mm. sang to each other. Yeah. Mm. So I, I think, I mean, it makes, I was certainly a fearful child, put it that way. Um, mm. And even into my early teens, absolutely petrified of, um, uh, I wasn't petrified of being hurt, which was odd. Like I'm not, I'm not scared of, um, Violence, because I know that you can survive that, and I've seen people survive it. But I think how it manifested in me is I'm terrified that you won't like me. That's how it manifested in me. So I, mm. I think that a self-esteem um, yeah. issue. Yeah. So yeah. really, it really affected your resilience. Uh, that's, you know, at, at that age, at the age of two, 
that's when your maternal attachment is really, you know, protective for your future. And you didn't really have a maternal attachment, did you? Your relationship with your mother early on was also fraught and strained, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, mm. Yeah, it was. And um, I think, look, mum was under a lot of stress and, as I said, um, mm. probably had an undiagnosed il illness. Um, I know that uh, mum did use a lot of Valium, mm. um, so I do recall that. Um, and, yeah, so she was very likely um, not totally out of it but trying to cope with life herself. Mm. Um, and then, you know, we emerged out of, out of that uh family, that relationship, um, and we began a lot of moving around. So whilst it was a huge relief, I do remember the day that we were told that my stepfather and mother were getting a divorce. So I remember exactly where I was in the backyard of my cousin's house and mm. I remember being so incredibly relieved just thinking that it's over, you know, finally it's over. Um, mm. And, yeah, we set about moving around. So at first that was kind of quite exciting and, and there were the three girls, my sister, my mum and I, and um, we just would pack everything up into the back of the car and head off. Mm. Um, what I realised down the track again is that as we grew older, um, you know, we were wanting to fit in. We were wanting to sort of find, uh, as you had mentioned before, our tribe or who we mm. peers, um, mm. a support network. I suppose we were craving some sort of stability by a certain point, um, even school. Like mum used to give us these RDOs, like rusted day off, and I remember saying, can we just go to school, mum? Like I just wanted to go to school uh, mm. and learn. Um, yeah, so we moved schools a lot. There was just that really disjointed, nothing was ever um, secure. Nothing was ever yeah. a given. So you were constantly uprooted. And you were unable to form therapeutic or positive attachments and connections with people. You didn't, you didn't have a bedrock of a friendship group that you could grow up with and together that could protect you from effectively the slings and arrows of adversity. Mm -hmm. You had an issue with the relationship between you and your mother. You didn't know your, you had, you know, your relationship with your father, your biological father. What, what was that like? I mean, you know, when he left, when he divorced your mother, did you see him thereafter when you were growing up? Uh, I saw him once in childhood. I think I was about five. Mm -hmm. um, so he wasn't there. I, no, he wasn't there. No, um, no. And I was always, um, I remember, because I was put on the aeroplane um, and I remember having a badge put on because I was flying on my own to go up mm -hmm. and see Dad. And so back in those days, you know, you had the air hostesses look after you. And I remember coming off the plane and being sick because that was the first time I'd been on a plane. And um, obviously, yeah, I just got air sickness. Mm. And I remember my dad being there um, at the other end um, coming up to me. And I just remember being mortified, at, even at age five, thinking, what's this man going to think of me? I'm like covered in vomit, you know? Mm. And so I guess what I'm saying is it's fun. It's interesting how a child just really wants that acceptance, wants to be mm. loved, wants to be okay. And I remember just thinking this will change his uh, view about me. Um, yeah. And I was five years old. So, mm. Mm. 
So but no, I didn't say. So you, you you broke up there. I could, can you say that again? So, so I didn't see him a lot until mm. um, my sister and I say, look, really, until the age where I could have a drink with Dad, mm. we didn't have a lot to do with Dad. Yeah. Right. So, so there was disjointed relationships with your peer group. There was disjointed relationships with your biological father. There was disjointed relationships with your mother, and there was a, a trauma and an abusive relationship with your your stepfather and, he, and his violence towards your mother. I mean, that's a that's a heady cocktail of adverse child experiences, uh, and is you know that's just so damaging to personal resilience. And I think you've alluded to the fact that you you really didn't have any resilience when you were growing up, did you? I, yeah, I don't. I don't remember having a lot of resilience. I certainly, I would definitely describe myself as as a sheep. You know, mm. as someone who just wanted to fit in somewhere. Just wanted to fit in, yeah. Absolutely, and um, I think the not the final straw, but I remember. So I went into when I went into year seven. It was a really. Um, it was a really important time, I suppose, in my development and um, or social development and probably, you know, searching for my own identity. And I found a group of girls um, at the school that I went to and I felt for the first time that maybe, you know, this is the beginning of year seven and maybe um, this is something that's that's going to be a lot of fun and I've got some friends. And, um, and at the end of year seven, my mum and her partner at the time said that they were moving to Brisbane and I remember saying mum can we please stay I've got my friends here and everything's you know settled and what have you and um and we ended up moving anyway and when we went up to Brisbane I remember the car ride I just I was I was angry by this stage I was angry you know and um didn't want I just thought I'm not even going to try when you get to Brisbane I'm not going to try and make friends I'm just done as soon as I can get up and move out I will um and yeah we got to Queensland and I just um I mean look I did try I did try and fit in um but I I just I didn't fit in we went to girls schools that were actually quite elite because dad paid for them um which was lovely and I'll never uh, I am very grateful for that education and I think actually it was a really a strong protective factor of mine and frankly without that ed education I'd hate to think of where I would have ended up mm. um, but yeah I definitely socially wasn't didn't mesh with the people and their parents um, weren't happy about them being friends with me and I don't blame them I was smoking cigarettes by 14 and um, probably probably a little aloof and just you know I've got children of my own now I know I wouldn't have let my kids hang around with me. So anyway, um, I really wouldn't have. So, yeah, by that stage, I was just a bit over it. And um, it wasn't long before mum sent my sister and I back to Melbourne to live with a family friend. And, yeah. So effectively, you were nurtured by a family friend in your early teens or, or middle teens, yeah? Yeah, so... At, I mean, what does that, that about say about your your experience in your relationship with your mother. Yeah, that, that definitely damaged our relationship. It, it had already been damaged. In saying that, look, I, I, 
I do. I, I adore my mum. I love my mum. I today have absolutely, um, you know, forgiven my mum. I understand mm. that she's she tried her best, that she's not well, and um, yeah, I, I'm mm. just I'm not gonna not gonna live in that. But it certainly said a lot about mum. Just I think wanted to be free. I don't. I think it was hard being a single mum. I think you know she had two teenage girls who had. I guess, turned on her because we had become angry and rebellious um, and we were probably a bit of a handful. But, um, we look, we weren't dreadful. Um, and, yeah, we came back down to Melbourne and that was sort of, that was the big turning point. That was the age where everything changed and I was, yeah, regularly drinking by this stage and could mm. obtain everything myself and didn't really need to ask permission for anything. Um, but, again... I was too young to have that sort of leeway. Um, mm, yeah. yeah. Let's just touch on you know, mental health a little bit. I mean, can you remember in your childhood ever having joy in your life or were you always, did you always experience, um, you know, anxiety? I think I always experienced anxiety. Um, oh, look, I did. I can't say I, you know, never had joy. My sister... I adored, we used to, um, I can tell you without my sister, I'm not sure I would even be here. Um, so I definitely adored her, took um, taking care of her very seriously. Like that was that was a role of mine and that was, again, something, a protective factor. Um, there was some joy, but mm. I do remember a constant feeling of fear and mm. I would say what I describe now is the hole in the soul. This this big soul, gaping yes. hole. Absolutely, absolutely. Emptiness, dysphoria. Oh, mm, absolutely. Mm. I think you know. Um, there's so much to be said for this the spiritual component of this mm. um, of this disease. There really yeah. is, and spiritually bankrupt. And I, I honestly feel that that's um, how I was able to continue to self destruct or um, systematically kill myself, really, mm. time and time again, because there just wasn't that soul connection. So one of the things that's it's quite common for people who have low resilience, low self-esteem, who want to be loved, who have this craving, this positivity, is that they, they feel they, they're, they're driven to try and become perfect. They suffer from perfectionism. Is that something that you identify with? Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, I I can't even begin to tell you how much I identify with that. And, mm. you know, I mean, I remember, I can remember exams at uni where I would get two questions wrong. I remember the answers to those questions, you know, that I looked up later. Um, I remember uh, it, I'm definitely an all or nothing person. If you can't do it properly, don't do it at all, Chrissy. Um, mm. That has... That has improved over time. As I've got older, I, I've just um, I'm at uni now, and honestly, if I get seventy five percent, I can handle it. It's not flash, but I can handle it. You know, seventy five. Um, I'd be ecstatic with seventy five percent. No, on, to me, to I mean, to me, that's just like go home, Chrissy. Go like, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. But. So this, yeah. this, this drive to perfectionism is actually quite damaging because it impedes you because no one can be perfect. So the fear of failure 
and the need to be perfect actually stops you from even starting projects, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, it really does. Mm. Um, as I said, I have improved. Um, I know, like, my mantra today is progress, not perfection. It's something that I really have oh, to I like by. Oh, yeah, it's it, yeah. honestly, I say it several times a day because progress, not perfection, I, and the whole in the soul. That's what I, I like those two statements <laughs> you've made. Yeah. Thank yeah. You. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it can be um, damaging, but I've loosened the reins on that. And, um, I mean, I remember as a teenager, the whole perfectionism stuff was around, you know, what you looked like. Like I could spend hours in a mirror and then just wash all my makeup off and go to bed and say, no, not good enough. I'll do it next time. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So, yeah. Or, um, alternatively, get really drunk and it didn't matter. <laughs> So, so it's that flip-flop, isn't it? If you're going to face yeah. up to the world, you've got to be perfect. Otherwise, it's oblivion. Otherwise, yeah, that's right. Blur, blur the... I mean, I actually wear prescription glasses um, because I can't see distances. But um, I remember for a long time, I chose not to wear lenses or glasses because I prefer the world to be blurry. Yeah. Which is, you know... Why, why was that, like do you reckon? Um, I really think that it it was wanting, it was, half of me didn't want to feel isolated or disconnected and the other part of me just wanted to hide and not face reality. So I'm, I'm really, I think the world um, scared me. Even at the age, even in my 30s, the world scared me. Mm. Um, and it wasn't, as I said, it wasn't, it wasn't a fear of violence or it wasn't that kind of scary. It was I just never knew what was coming next and mm. it always felt like there was an axe that was going to fall, you know, yeah. that, that impending doom, like um, where's it going to come from? And, mm. I mean, my goodness, once I actually had children, that it, as, as incredible as that experience was and, and having babies to love, um, the, the concern around me losing them because finally I had something worth, um, having or keeping or, or something that meant the world to me, I was absolutely petrified and convinced that um, that they were going to be taken away from me, not by the police but by God, but they were going to mm. be hit by a bus, you know. Mm. And I really had to do a lot of work around that because it, it had me frozen in fear. Mm. I was just, you know, one day that I was going to pay for who I'd been or what I'd done. Mm. So, I mean, it's not all doom and gloom. You've already alluded to the fact that you had some protective factors in your, in your upbringing, and you've alluded to your educational opportunities. And, you know, I think there's a common theme in social medicine that demonstrates that higher educational levels are actually protective against chronic disease. Um, and also, you had your, 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 the imperative that you had, your love for your sister and the need to look after her, that was also a protective factor. Would you, would you clarify those two issues for us? Um, well, I mean, okay, so around education, um, when you say clarified, do you mean, because um, you were saying that there's less chance of me so um, you, you, you said previously that, you know, you're glad that you had the opportunity of attending a very a private school, mm -hmm. a prestigious school, and yeah. that was paid for by your father. Because yeah. what would have happened to you had you not had that? I see. That's what um, you said. 
Yeah, that's right. That is what I said. I think, look, it gave, I mean, I'm not sure. Obviously, I'm not convinced that, you know, to be honest, my sister uh, went to the high school, but she had a really, really um, close, big group of friends. So she had that sort of social network support. Um, for me, who didn't have the group of friends, I um, it gave me a sense, something to be proud of. Um, I did somehow pull out good marks. Um, back then, I didn't find it so hard. So that was probably something I was naturally talented at, not so much anymore, probably. But anyway, um, so it gave me a sense of pride. It gave me something um, that I could feel good about. And it also gave me hope that uh, even the fact that I got into uni, like I knew that there was something to look forward to. I, I always mm. did have, as much as I had that sense of impending doom, I also had this flicker of hope that one day it's going to be different and one day when I find the answer to whatever it is that's wrong, mm. there'll be something. And I'm, you know, incredibly grateful for that tiny, tiny little bit of hope. Um, mm. So you had a yeah. sense of purpose, albeit... Yeah, the ed edu your education gave you a sense of purpose and a meaningful activity. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, interestingly, like sometimes, as much as I had a low self-esteem, when I drank, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just the typical Jekyll and Hyde, but um, when I drank, I went from having this ridiculously low self-esteem couple of drinks in I'd get to probably around about where you sit most days like normal <laughs> and then after a bottle or two I had these um I sort of morphed into these delusions of grandeur and suddenly I'm bigger and better and superior to you mm. and everything that I know that you're thinking about me or that you've said about me will you know buggy you or whatever and I'll and mm. this is now my opportunity to tell you what I actually think of you Mm. Even though you haven't actually asked him my opinion, I'm still mm. going to tell you. I was horrible. Mm. Um, but that's where, yeah, so um, I'd often use that kind of schooling. It was my only, um, it's, I mean, it's not obviously a claim to fame, but it was my only sort of the part about me where I could exert on others how I felt better than them when, mm. you know, and it's not a nice way to be. I mean, I used to... Um, treat my husband a bit that way when we'd have arguments and um, and generally when I was intoxicated. And, yeah, my overall sort of feeling was that I'm better than you and, um, yeah, it's not very mm. nice. So, Chrissy, thank you so much for your pearls of wisdom and insights. I'm looking forward to hearing your your your, your story as it progresses again, but unfortunately we've run out of time. Nine. So can you just give me one, one thought that encapsulates what we've just talked about in this last half hour or so? One thought, okay. One thought. What's the most important um, thing you think we've touched on? I think the most important thing for me, I mean, I'm a really, really positive person today. So the most important thing for me is that, you know, regardless of um, – anything you know that has gone on in my past in my upbringing um good and bad uh today my my history is honestly my greatest asset it's um it's what i can draw on to identify and help other people help other women um it's also something that i have 
as you mentioned, um, overcome. Um, so I guess there's a sense of, I wouldn't say pride, but I'm very relieved and I'm extremely grateful. Um, but yeah, overall, I think that no matter what sort of adverse uh, beginnings we have, um, it doesn't have to dictate how the end of the story plays out. Recovery is possible. So Chrissy, thank you. And I look forward to seeing you again next week. Thank you.